Holy God, through your word, give us a message of truth. We are bombarded with worldly messages through advertising, through media, through social media, and even people we listen to. But this morning, Lord, we pray, teach us and grant us wisdom that we may live in a manner pleasing to your sight. And may our souls find joy in your presence. Amen. Well, this is the third Sunday of Advent, and as our bulletins tell us, this, uh, the theme of this Sunday is joy. And as we have done the last two Sundays, we'll continue to use the book of Isaiah as our, our guide through these Sundays of Advent, and not really meant to be any kind of deep dive into Isaiah, but I will say today's going to be a little bit deeper of a dive. It's going to be a little more teaching heavy, so stay with me. Hopefully uh, it's interesting because Isaiah is definitely an important book. Um, I may have mentioned this before, but it's quoted in the New Testament something like 65 times, which tells us that when the New Testament authors reflected on the scriptures, on the words of Isaiah, They saw the promise of the Messiah in those words, and they saw Jesus being the fulfillment of that promised Messiah. Jesus himself, even uh, when he very first launched into his public ministry, reflected on these words, or on Isaiah's words. Um, When he's, he's in Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's handed a scroll to read from. And it's the scroll of Isaiah, and he goes down and he finds what's in our Bible, Isaiah 61. They didn't have those chapter divisions back then, so he had to scroll down and find it. But he comes to this passage in Isaiah, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. And in the presence of the people in that synagogue, he said to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This, this passage in Isaiah is pointing towards me. And so I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I just want to emphasize the importance of this book of Isaiah. So it's definitely worth a deep dive Um, maybe Sunday school class or maybe another series at another time. But I want us to think back real quick to the past two Sundays. So the first Sunday of Advent, we looked at chapter 8. Last Sunday, we took a passage from chapter 11. And we talked about how those two passages shared the same historical context. Um, Well, today, we are skipping all the way from chapter 11 to chapter 40. That's a pretty big Jump Uh, Something like, if I do my math right, I think that's 29-ish chapters. And so I thought, before I begin this reading today, just picking up in Isaiah chapter 40, we need to kind of see what's happened, what's been going on, because it's different. There's a different context happening. So I'm just going to try to summarize some of these chapters. But if we remember, chapter 8 and chapter 11, do you all remember who was king at that time? His name started with an A, ends with a Z. Ahaz? Yeah, I knew y'all all had it. Y'all were all firing on the cylinders there. You, you got it. King Ahaz. Was he a good king or a bad king? Bad king. Bad king. Not, not, not the best. Not good times. 
Um, now, there was also the threat of the Assyrian Empire, which was kind of the, the big empire of the day, and they were known for their brutality. They're not nice neighbors to have. So overall, just not great times. Well, you get to Isaiah, and really chapters 13 through 27, it kind of shifts the focus, and there's a, there's a number of, of chapters in there that proclaim a future judgment against the nations surrounding Judah. And so it talks, to, it gives a judgment against Assyria, to Babylon, to Egypt, to Moab, and others. But sprinkled in there, it also gives a message of hope, this hope that is to come. Well, then we get to chapters 28 through 35, and the, atten- the attention of the passage shifts again, and now it's centered on Judah and Jerusalem, and it gives them this warning and this judgment for, for not trusting in the Lord. It's trying to encourage them, trust in the Lord. But there's one more section that I want to cover, and I want to cover it in a little bit more detail uh, before we get to chapter 40. So we're going to slow down a little bit because within this little section, these few chapters, a lot is happening. Um, So this is focusing in on chapters 36 through 39. And these chapters are interesting because they give us a specific a link to a historical context, a direct link. But this historical context is different, like I said, than what was before. There's a shift in time. So let's put Isaiah 36.1 up here. So it begins in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign. That's a different king, right? That's not King Ahaz in anymore. That's King Hezekiah. Well, King Hezekiah, that's Ahab's son. Not too much time has passed. But we also have a date marker in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign. So we know at least 14 years have passed since our previous context. Maybe a little more, but at least 14 years. And if you're someone that likes to have specific dates in mind, if you're a a timeline person, uh, so this would have occurred about 701 B.C. How do we know that? Well, we know when King Hezekiah reigned. His reign began at about 715 So if you go forward about 14 years, that puts us at 701 B.C. I just love when when in the Bible we can really place things in a specific nature like that. So that's our time frame. But now what's happening in this new kind of contextual time frame? So this is where you have to stay with me just a little bit because i got a sidestep. Over to the book of 2 Kings. I know you're just eager to jump there. You don't have to jump there. But in 2 Kings chapter 18, if you read that chapter, you would read that in the sixth year of King Hezekiah's reign, not the 14th, but in the sixth year of his reign, the Assyrians conquered and destroyed, or conquered the northern um, uh, nation of Israel and destroyed the capital city of Samaria. That's a significant event. Remember, the the nation of Israel had, after King Solomon, had split into two nations. Judah was the southern nation. Israel kept the name and was the northern nation. And that whole nation was invaded by the Assyrians and captured and people taken into exile. Well, Hezekiah lived through all that. He reigned through all that. He knew what had happened in Israel for sure. He had known all that. He had heard about the destruction and how the Assyrians had led the Israelites into captivity, into exile, and all that stuff. 
Well, eight years later, after that happens, this passage picks up. Now, what happens eight years after the fall of Israel, we see Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. This isn't Israel anymore. He's now talking about the southern kingdom of Judah. So sometimes we kind of simplify things and we say the northern um, nation was captured by the Assyrians and the southern was eventually the Babylonians. There's a little more to the story. The Assyrians actually came down into Judah. They actually captured fortified cities and they surrounded Jerusalem. They're literally outside the walls of Jerusalem, ready to take siege on the capital, ready to conquer And inside those walls, you have Hezekiah. You have Isaiah, who is serving as, you know, his his kind of consultant or or spiritual leader, his advisor. And what chapters 36 through 39 of Isaiah essentially cover, it's this narrative account of King Hezekiah's reign in the midst of this Assyrian threat to Jerusalem. And just kind of as another aside, Isaiah's 36, 37, 38, 39 are almost the exact same. You can put your Bibles side by side with those passages in 2 Kings. Like it's word for word nearly exactly the same. It's that same narrative story. So just just as a side note, and I'm not going to go into all the detail of what that happened, but that's the context. The Assyrian threat is real. The Assyrian threat is right outside the walls, and Hezekiah and Isaiah and the people are within. Think about how scary that would have been to face that sort of national threat, knowing that the other nation of Israel had already been conquered, had already been destroyed, the people already led into captivity, and here they were, the Assyrians, surrounding Jerusalem. And that's kind of where Jerusalem's delivered because uh, Hezekiah turns to the Lord. And I didn't get into that part. But that's basically where chapter 39 in Isaiah ends. It's almost like this little cliffhanger. It's like kind of what next? Well, before we pick up in chapter 40, we have to talk about this. If you're someone that likes to mark in your Bibles, if you're kind of a right-in-the-margins person, this is a good place to, maybe you want to draw a line between the end of chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40, because at that time, there is a gap of about a hundred years that have passed that it doesn't give any explanation of. You think, well, maybe nothing important happened. Actually, a lot of important things happened within that 100 years that Isaiah doesn't uh, get into in, in the book of Isaiah, that it doesn't include. So what happened within these 100 years? So just kind of point out three things. One, after King Hezekiah, which was generally a good king, the next 100 years were ruled by bad kings, with the exception of Josiah. We talked about Josiah a few weeks ago. He was a good king. All the rest, it's just... You know, like when you see the graph of the stock market and it's just kind of like going down and then there's like maybe a little jump up and like that was good. So that was Josiah and then it just kept going down. That was the state of the leadership of the nation. So uh, continued bad kings. Uh, The second thing that happened within these hundred years 
So big, bad Assyria had then got conquered by the bigger, badder at that time, Babylon. That happened at about 612 B.C. So Babylon becomes the new big power at the time. Which leads to one of the most significant, if not the most significant event in Old Testament history. When the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar invaded and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and led the people of Jerusalem into exile. None of that's recorded in narrative form in Isaiah. That's what happens within that kind of 100 year or so gap between the end of chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40. But you have to understand that when you get to chapter 40 or else you won't know what it's talking about. It won't have much meaning to you when you read the words of chapter 40. Things had gone from bad to worse to about as terrible as they could be. It was the most distressing and devastating time in Israelite history. Jerusalem laid in ruins. People were killed. Others led away from their homes in bondage sent off to captivity and to exile. The temple of God was reduced to rubble. Their place of worship was no more. Think about those people. What future did they have? What hope was there then? What peace did they feel? What joy did they have? Probably not much, if, if any, at that point. I mean, just read the book of Lamentations. It's a whole book lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem and the despair and the, the hopelessness that they felt. That's the background. That's the context as we enter into these words in chapter 40. All that darkness, all that pain leads us to chapter 40. And God has a word for his people. So let's read now from chapter 40. I'm going to focus on verses 1 through 9. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Go on up to to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, says, or fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. In the context of the most devastating period in, old, in the Old Testament, when everything was not just figurative, figuratively, but quite literally lost and destroyed, 
Verse 1 announces these words from God. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. When circumstances were as, about as hopeless as they could be, here we see these words, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. The, these words, they're an announcement saying that this time of captivity, this time of hardship and, and of just despair of this time of exile is over. And God is going to do a new thing. This is a huge transition point in the book of Isaiah, right at chapter 40 and moving forward, because it's moving toward God's salvation, God's redemption of his people, both his people in Judah in kind of that time, but it's also giving this message of future messianic hope as well, what God is going to do for all of us. Verse 9 compels us. It, it gives this, this declaration to have joy and to praise God, to go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, to, to go up on the mountain and say, Behold your God. To put all one's focus and affection, put all one's strength and joy in the Lord. In the midst of this ruin and despair, there's this spark of hope and a reason for joy. One of my favorite all-time Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. Anybody else like that one? It's a good one. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Or it's way past time for, you know, being upset about spoilers. I don't know when it came out, but it was black and white. So if you haven't seen it by now, that's on you. Uh, no, if you haven't seen it, watch it. But the main character's name is George Bailey, and he's, he's this character, he's got, he's got a good heart, and he sacrifices his own dreams, his own ambitions for kind of the betterment of his family and his community. But then times got tough for George Bailey. He felt the struggles. He, he felt backed into a corner, and he fell into such despair to the point of just wanting to end it all on Christmas Eve. This, this darkness in the movie, is, you can almost kind of feel it, just enveloped him. But in the movie, he's, he's given an opportunity to consider what the world, what his community would be like if he had never been born. And that perspective that he, he gains, it, it opens his eyes to a bigger picture, this bigger perspective and he begins to see the many blessings in and around his life. And really, it, it restores his, his joy. And, I, you know, every time I watch it, right towards the end, I start kind of, you know, my allergies start kicking in. It's just the allergies. Um, but this sense, you know, just this transformation of this person from despair to joy, from hopelessness to just exaltation. And it's a, it's a beautiful story. When we think about our world today, our world struggles with joy. I mean, I don't really have to say much about that. We know, you know, just what a problem anxiety is in the world today of stress, depression, it plagues our society. And while I certainly think there are circumstances that need medical assistance, you know, I want to acknowledge that, the realities of such conditions, you know, I wonder, though, if most 
of the lack of joy in our society is simply a result of our preoccupation with securing our own happiness, of pursuing our own happiness and our own wants. Because when, we, when we're in pursuit of our own happiness, we tend to focus inward. We tend to focus on our own wants, the things that make us happy. I think we all know that when we pursue those things, it's a never-ending pursuit because there's always something else. There's always something new that we're pursuing. It's, a, it's like this chasing after the wind. It's an insatiable hunger because we know that nothing in this world can ever truly satisfy us. We can't buy it. Uh, we can't achieve it with our personal or, or professional accolades or success or you know whatever we may convince ourselves that we need in life. It doesn't ever measure up. I think our world struggles with joy because it's so focused on chasing after happiness. But here's the, the truth. God doesn't call us to pursue happiness. But rather, God calls us to pursue his holiness. And that's a completely different perspective on life. It's a completely different message than what's sold to us in the media and in advertising. It changes the focus of our life completely. The starting point is completely different. It's not us, it's God. It's not on our wants. It's on God's glory. Now, I'm not suggesting that God never wants you to be happy. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that when we focus our lives first and foremost on God's holiness, our happiness then becomes rooted in something so much more substantial, so much more meaningful, so much more real and enduring than anything that this world can offer. We've become so blinded by everything around us. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or these words from Psalm 33, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Our ultimate happiness, and what I mean by in that sense, is our soul's greatest desire and affection and joy is found and rooted in Christ our Lord and Savior. As I've said over the past couple of weeks, that faith is the foundation of hope. Faith is the foundation of peace. Well, I believe faith is the foundation of joy. And joy not being so much an emotion that we feel, but a state of being where our soul is satisfied. This is why the Apostle Paul can even talk about rejoicing even in suffering. You know, suffering, not a happy experience. No one's going along saying, yay, I'm suffering. It's not a happy experience, but we can have joy even in the midst of suffering because our joy is the sustaining strength for us because we know that Christ is for us. So this Advent season, as we remember these familiar words that the angel announced to the shepherds, 
Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If you're struggling with feeling a sense of joy, I hope you will just take a step back in your life. I know that's hard to do, especially this time of year. It's busy, I get it. But if you're struggling with that sense of joy, I encourage you to find an opportunity to take a step back from all the clutter and focus on your faith. Bring yourself before God and focus on the one thing that matters more than anything else. Remember what the gospel is all about. Remember what Christmas represents, right? The reason for the season, what God has done for you by entering into this world. Remember what the cross represents. And remember what God has called you to be and to do. I'll end with these words from Romans 12. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we confess that sometimes we fall into despair because of our circumstances. Lord, we confess that we get so distracted by our world and everything going on around us. We get overwhelmed, Lord. Lord, we live in a society that struggles to find peace and hope and joy and even meaning. We know that depression is a very real pandemic in our age. But you, Lord, in you do we have strength for today and hope for tomorrow. So we pray strengthen our faith and our resolve to love you, to serve you, and to glorify you in all that we say and do. And empower us to be the light in the darkness. We pray for those in our church family in need of prayer, for those who are mourning loss, for Rick Myers and his 